What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game, often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, just want to ask you a quick favor. If you can, please stop what you're doing and leave a review for the podcast. Whatever platform you're listening in on, if you can give us a five star or whatever the highest rating is, it would be fantastic. And even better, if you found it useful in any way, please write that down on a very brief review if that's possible. It makes such a difference to how the podcast is received out there and pushed out on various platforms. That's all. Nothing else to ask. Now let's get on with the show. All right, guys, picture the scene. It's 2006. Um, I'm a 34-year-old Irish guy. I'm involved in the property sector, and we were going through what was called the Celtic Tiger at the time. Massive property boom. Everything's going bonkers. And I've got a load of balls in the air. I'm juggling multiple deals, trying to keep all the kind of the show on the road, basically. And a really interesting commercial property comes up for sale. It's, for me at the time, big money, 1.25 million have to come up with a way to get that money because I didn't have it. And uh, so I put a deposit down and six weeks later, maybe six, eight weeks later, I'm sitting on a two and a half million euro profit. How did I do that? Well, that is one of the things I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. This week, I'm going over the best property deal that I ever did. So this is part of a, um, a kind of a series I'm doing on my first deal, my best deal, and my worst deal. And I brought the worst deal in because I want to balance things out. Don't want to give the wrong impression there and make you kind of feel like it, you know, property sector is easy. It's just, you know, click a switch and you're going to make lots of money. There's a lot of ups and downs in any career, I would say. And anyone who's currently going through, um, you know, a boom, then I have to warn you that at some point there will be a bust. And if you're if you're disciplined and if you kind of manage your affairs well, you'll be able to weather that storm. But a lot of people kind of got themselves into a lot of difficulty back in 2008. So that is what I'm going to be kind of covering today. Some of the, the hype of the Celtic Tiger is justified. Like some of the deals that people were making were insane. And that's what I'm going to go over today. One of the most insane deals that I ever did. Now, in the last episode, I just want to kind of go back over the fact that I was talking about my first property that I ever bought, which was my home back in 1993 when I was in my kind of early 20s. And then I talked about buying my second property, which was my my, my next home. Now, that wasn't actually strictly accurate. I, I was thinking about this and actually there was a property, like there was an apartment, a one bedroom apartment that I bought as an investment property in between that. It was around about 1998. And while it did okay financially, I have to be honest, it was a bit of a headache. And um, it was a property located over an abracababra uh, sort of takeaway place on Westmoreland Street. In fact, the Abercababra is still there. So if you're ever, if you're familiar with Dublin, you'll know Abercababra on Westmoreland Street. I had the, f- the apartment on the second floor above it. And the problem with buying uh, a second, well, the problem with buying any apartment over any takeaway place is you don't realize it at the time when you're going to buy it. But a couple of months after owning it, I realized there is a constant smell of, uh, 
oil fat from from the deep fryers that they use in these places and so that kind of permeates into everything so that's one of the downsides but the other downside of actually having a place right in the city center um, and the way this that the entrance door to this apartment building there was a staircase and you went through a door and the door is set back so that it doesn't get wet uh, and so that you can kind of have a door swing but unfortunately, because of the homeless issue, and, and it was back in those days as well, the homelessness issue, there would be always a guy asleep in that doorway. And so if you've been out, you know, for a meal or something like that, and you come back to the apartment kind of like eight or nine o'clock in the evening, you've got to ask this poor guy like to kind of move so you can open the door of your apartment. And not all, they were, it wasn't always that he was there awake. You'd actually have to like, force the guy move him over with the door and so difficult situation not attractive to rent a place when it has that issue on a regular basis and so low you know the long and short of it all is the the the, the, the property did okay I, I i think i had an annual rent of about 12 percent in terms of a yield so it was it wasn't bad and i held it for about 10 years but it was around about 20 12 or something like that or yeah around about then that I sold it and I would say the banks were kind of putting me under pressure at that stage so I sold it in the recession so I didn't do it particularly well on the sale I think I made probably around the same amount that I paid for it in terms of the sale price so it um it was you know it was a mediocre at best 12 percent yield for for 10 years is pretty good but there was a lot of headaches with that property. So I would say it wasn't particularly attractive. Anyway, let's get into, I'm going to go back a little bit. This is not a big, big deal. This is my first pivotal deal, we'll say. And, you know, I've been talking about buying homes and stuff, but actually this is a development deal that I did. This was my first development deal. And it's when I realized what's possible in the property investment sector. And so about a year after I bought that apartment and um, and it was sort of sitting in my portfolio, we'll say, collecting rent and stuff, I came across a um, I came across this property in the west coast of Ireland. Now, let me just put put this all into context. At the time, I was working as an architect and I had just set up my own small little architectural practice. And what I was doing with that practice was like there wasn't much work, so I took the first job I could get which was a domestic house extension for a couple uh, living in Ranala at the time. And these, this was you know, like a typical, any couple, most people, they have a tight enough budget and it's gonna be, you know, they wanna extend their house, they wanna do a nice job, but they're only gonna be able to get so much from the bank and therefore they're on a tight budget. And so they wanted to spend, they had like a cap of about 80,000 that they wanted to spend on this extension to their house. And my fee, an architect typically charges about 10% when you're in that kind of spend. And so that was my fee, 8,000. Now, as an architect working on that project, I think I spent maybe 10 months on that project. And it was pretty brutal. Like for eight grand, 10 months, that's like 800 a month that you're working for. But this took up a lot of my time. And so it was, you know, it was kind of an eye opener for me. Like this is, this is architecture, woof, you know. And at the same time, I stumbled, stumbled upon this property um, in the west coast of Ireland. When I say stumbled upon, it was, a, you know, the family, uh, my family were from that area. And so there was, you know, there was kind of a bit of a history around the site and stuff. And so I was aware of it. 
and it was a one acre site on the main street of a town called Enniscrone, right in the middle of um, Sligo. And uh, I was able to buy it for 25,000 and I had cash. So I just bought the property for 25,000 cash. Now, in my case, I was an architect, as you know, and so I decided, well, I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll go and get planning permission for this myself. So it took me about two months between getting the drawings, putting all the, you know, assembling all the paperwork and stuff and submitting it. Um, that was sent off. And then about two months later, you come back and they gave me a grant of planning permission. So suddenly I've gone from it being, a, you know, a one acre site with cows literally grazing on the land from the local farm. And now all of a sudden it's a site with planning for four houses that I've obtained and I own. So what do you do in that situation? Well, you have to figure out what are you going to do? Are you going to sell the site? I wanted to be a developer. I always had that kind of ambition. And so I thought, no, I'm not going to sell the site. I'm simply going to go and I'm going to build the houses and then I'm going to sell the houses. I'm going to make that my profit that way. So went to a local auctioneer and like obviously when you're doing this you have to know what your inputs and your outputs are so I wanted to know what was the end value if I had built four houses what were those four houses likely to be worth so I went to a local auctioneer I can remember his name was Philip McComiskey uh, at the time and I asked him what would a house on you know on about a quarter of an acre what would it make in Enniscrone and he gave me a kind of a sales price and then I said I need to go and get the, you know, the cost of building this, these four houses. Do you know a local builder who could actually quote for the job? So he said, yeah, I know somebody. I'll go and have a chat with him and I'll come back to you with some, you know, some contact details or a number or whatever. So he went off. A couple of days later, he comes back to me and he says, Gavin, uh, I spoke to the builder, um, but rather than, you know, buy, you know, rather than build the properties for you, he's, he wants to offer you you know, just to get out of the deal now and just take some money and basically walk away and he'll just, he'll build it himself. And this was a, an immediate turn off for me initially because I was kind of thinking, are you kidding? Like, I'm, I want to be the developer here. I, like, I want to learn. I, I need to do this project in order to learn how to develop. And uh, I said, you know, are you not going to give me a price for the you know, construction? And he said, no, but I'll give you a price that he's going to, he's going to pay you to actually buy the site off you. He'll give you 125,000. Um, it's a ready to go site off, you know, he'll just buy it and he'll start building straight away. So I kind of thought to myself, whoa, I, I bought this for 25 grand. And in the space of like three or four months, I've turned it into 125 grand, like a five X return. And uh, so this blew my mind. I kind of thought to myself, whoa, like I have just been working the last 10 months for this couple on their house extension and I'm earning 8,000 for all that work. And in half the time, if, if not even less than half the time, I've earned 100,000. So this was a pivotal moment for me. And it just made me kind of think, you know what, I'm getting out of architecture and I'm going fully into property investment and development. That's where, you know, clearly that's where the economic rewards are compared to architecture. So it was very, very clear to me. Now, I have to kind of, re when I go back and think about this, I remember the discussions around this because this, like I had set up my business and it was only like a year old or whatever. And suddenly here I am talking about pivoting and like closing it down essentially. 
And I can remember my friends, my architectural friends teasing me that I would be joining the dark side as if I was like Darth Vader or something like that. And uh, but the other thing, I have to be honest, I did harbor a number of reservations about this pivot. And like, first of all, I have to tell you, the name of the company that I established at the time was called Galdivar. And people used to joke about it sounding like the name of some dinosaur, but Galdivar was Gallagher Development and Architecture. And so in my mind, I was a developer and an architect. Gallagher Development Architecture. But, and so that was playing in my mind, but there was two primary reasons why I was, I, I was harboring these reservations. And the first was, it took me six years to get my degree in architecture, like six long, hard slogging years of studying. Now, you know, people kind of think you go off to college and it's a bit of a blast. Like, you know, you just drink your way through six years of not architecture. Architecture was really intense. A lot of long, you know, basically having to do at least once a week, I was doing all nighters to complete projects in, uh, in time for the kind of handover. And so it was a very, very intensive course. And of course, when you think about, when you look back on it and you kind of say to yourself, am I going to walk away from six years? Um, and that was that, you know, that was going through my head. Now, of course, in retrospect, what I realized that is now is that is the call, that's the sunk cost fallacy. And that is a kind of a condition that you have in your mind where you feel like you've invested so much already to date that you cannot justify giving up and abandoning it now. And that is also what happens when people are buying shares in a company and they keep on buying as the price is going down and they keep thinking, I'll keep on, you know, I'll keep buying, I'll keep buying. And when it comes back, I'll make all my money back. And so there's a point where you realize, uh oh, I'm in deep trouble here and you have to abandon it. And so it is always worth your while. Like forget that sink, sunk cost fallacy. Always bear in mind the sunk cost fallacy. It's a fallacy in your mind that you've invested so much that you can't give up now. The best thing to do a lot of the time is just to cut your losses and walk away. Now, the second reason that I had these reservations about pivoting was because, uh, and it's more personal, that my dad, my late father, who had only just died a couple of years earlier, he had been very, very proud that I managed to get into architecture in the first place, because uh, like, first of all, he didn't go to college. But second of all, it, it did not for, for most of my life, it did not look like for most of my young childhood, we'll say it did not look like I was going to be going to any kind of a college like I was not academically gifted in any way. I had terrible in a time in school, um, in terms of distraction and stuff, I think I probably had ADHD because I just could not concentrate on the class. And I can remember my report card coming home and always dreading it because the teacher would have, you know, a spelling test. Gavin did one out of 50 on a spelling test and things like this. I mean, it was brutal. And so, you know, it's unlikely that, I, that a kid like that is going to go to college, or at least that's what's going on in, in, in most people's minds. But what happened, and this is an interesting kind of aside, is in, in 1987, my parents took us, the family, like we were kids, took us to America um, on holiday. And our first stop was New York City. And I'd you know, never been to America before. Landing in New York City and seeing the skyscrapers towering over you is an absolutely incredible 
I mean, for me, it was absolutely incredible. I was standing there. I just kept on, you know, craning my neck up, staring into the sky, counting the floors and thinking, I've never seen anything like this. And it was that moment that I suddenly realized this is what I want to do. I want to build buildings and I want to build like big buildings kind of like this. And so it was this pivotal moment insofar as it, it basically changed my whole kind of focus and direction and suddenly when I went back to school I was crystal clear what the objective was and why I was going to concentrate in class and sure enough I went and I got through um, got into architecture architecture was quite a difficult course to get into so I kind of achieved the points and I got into Bolton Street which had an aptitude test and that certainly helped and anyway it made my dad proud and when he died I kind of carried this weight of his expectations on my shoulders. I was kind of thinking, you know, he's so proud, I can't really give this up, you know. And um, it, in retrospect, it was, it's understandable, emotional feeling, but it was a mistake because I've actually been um, reading a book lately and it's a book called The Five Biggest Regrets of the Dying. And it's a, it's a book by a lady called Bro Bronnie Ware. And she was a palliative care nurse for her whole career. And palliative care is where you take care of terminally ill patients and you basically nurse them until their death. And so it's, it's obviously it's a pretty difficult job to do and it takes a certain type of person. But this nurse, Bronnie, she spoke to all of her patients over the years and she built up this list of all of the regrets they had on their deathbed. And the number one wish or regret that all of these people had is they said that they wish they had had the courage to live their life in their to their the, a life that was true to them as opposed to living a life that others had expected of them and so super powerful when you think about it like look at what you're doing today are you happy with what you're doing today is it something that you want to do or is it something that you know parents expect you to do or whatever it might be is it something that you know your peers expect you to do um like starting this podcast i i kind of faced quite a bit of ridicule believe it or not um from people that i knew kind of saying podcast are you serious like what are you going to talk about this kind of thing so you do have to kind of chart your own course and um just remember that make sure what you're doing is what you want to do Anyway, I've drifted off the topic there a bit. Let's get back to my best ever deal. Now, this deal that I'm about to tell you about is it's just it's extraordinary in terms of it was a stroke of luck. And I kind of hesitate to tell people about this deal at times because I don't want to give anyone the, the impression that you can just click a finger and make profit like this in, in, the, in the property business it would be a disservice to give that impression because it is not that easy you know it requires rolling up sleeves and hard work and all that but occasionally you get lucky in the same ways occasionally you can get unlucky but in this particular case it was just extraordinary now i'll give you some of the details the, the site or the building was located in clondalkin and that's a part of dublin um kind of west dublin and one of the main banks that um, that occupy kind of all the kind of the main street locations in around Ireland and stuff, they had been located here and they closed 
the, the, the branch down. They pulled down the shutters and they stopped operating. They had moved to a newer branch sort of nearby or whatever. And so as soon as you notice that, you kind of think to yourself, ah, what's going to happen with this location? And so that's what I started. So I started putting the feelers out, trying to figure out what is going to happen to this site because I already knew the Clondalkin area. I'd done a couple of projects in that area, so I was quite familiar with it. And I spoke to a couple of agents and they confirmed, yeah, it's coming on the market so in a, probably in about two months or something like that. So that little bit of information is absolutely vital. If you have the lowdown on a kind of any kind of information, it just gives you that competitive advantage that the rest of the market does not yet have. And so always, you know, try to make the most of it. relationships you have. If you're able to kind of, you know, use a friend in a place or something like that, just to get a little bit of information that confirms something that maybe is not widely known, that can be super, super valuable. So I knew that this was coming up in the market. The rest of the market um, was not completely aware of it, that I was aware of anyway. And so it started thinking, okay, what am I going to do with this? If I, if I was to buy this, what would I do with it? So I got an architect on board and we started brainstorming the different configurations for that particular site. It was a very high profile site on a corner. And um, I thought, okay, what we could do is we could either convert the building or we can demolish the building and just do something new. And we spent a couple of weeks looking at all the different options, putting together plans, you know, um, we thought to ourselves we might put a big you know convenience store on the ground floor and then put something above that or we thought what about a medical center what if we were to put a pharmacy on the ground floor and then like a doctor surgery or a dental surgery and the floor above that would be something that could really be lucrative you know so we thought about this and um we had a couple of weeks to obviously kind of do our numbers and stuff and figure out what would be the potential value if we were to demolish the building, build this new building, configure it that way, put in a pharmacy, put in the doctor and all that. What would be the rent? And if you got that rent, what would be the investment value of it? And then you deduct the cost of construction and all that kind of stuff. And you work out, and of course their site price, and you work out, that's how you work out what the site is, should cost you in terms of figuring out, is there gonna be enough profit in the deal? So in this case, I worked it out that we, we could afford approximately 1 to 1.25 million for this property. And that would allow me scope to demolish the building, build something new, and have enough profit left over after paying for the site and stuff. Um, when it eventually hit the market, like it was a couple of weeks later, as we kind of anticipated, they, they put it on the market, they advertised it, and a lot of people will see this and they'll kind of like say, oh yeah, we must go and have a look. But I was obviously ahead of the game. So I immediately, like that same week it went on the market, I lodged an offer of 950,000. So I knew that I could pay between one and 1.25 and I bid 950. And I did it really, really quickly because I just kind of thought, let's get to the front of the line. Let's be the first person to put the bid in so that you're kind of on the map, so to speak, or certainly on the radar. And um, anyway, as it turns out, there was already another bidder in the in the mix and whenever that happens i mean i was thinking to myself hmm how did how is there already another guy on the market well obviously he'd done his homework as well or maybe he'd been tipped off by his agent or whatever but i ended up bidding against this other person and we were bidding you know my 950 he bid nine he bid he bid i think uh 975 then i bid a million and then rather than it go any more the agent came back to us and said 
we want to go to best bids between the two of you. And uh, so on Friday of this week, we want you to submit an offer in writing and that will be whatever the offer is, that will be the bid and uh, the, w the winner will take the property. So I went and put together a bid for this and I bid and I said my offer would be you have to draw up a letter and all this. In my letter, I said my offer is 1.05 million. However, with the proviso that should another bid come in higher than that, I'm willing to pay 5,000 more than the highest bid up to a max cap of 1.25 million. Now, sounds complicated, but basically meant I was capping out my offer at 1.25, but I was trying to get it at the lower price if it was possible. A few days later, I got informed by the agents that were selling the property that I was successful. 1.25 was the price. <laughs> Needless to say, I was like, hmm, I wonder what happened to my 1.05. But sure enough, I'm the, I'm the winner. So happy days. You know, it's, I'm, I'm delighted. This was around about the end of November in 2006. So we're heading towards Christmas. And I'm thinking, geez, where am I going to get this money from now? Like initially, you're kind of thinking, yay, we won it. Next minute, you're thinking now panic stations like where am I going to get 1.25 million I barely had the initial deposit to put it down so this was this was going to be a bit of a struggle now I called my bank manager and at the time I used to lavish all this love and attention on my bank manager and the various people in the branch that looked after stuff so I would have sent her this huge Christmas hamper worth about 250 euro be filled with wine and all the different kind of stuff that you get around Christmas time and uh, so it'd be a huge hamper so you'd feel very special if you got this kind of hamper and so I was kind of seeing in her eyes I was as this special customer we'll say and I kind of said look I can barely put this deposit together like I'm actually going to need to dip into my overdraft to actually fund this but the bigger problem is that I'm going to need the full 1.25 in a couple of weeks time um, can you give me that? And her answer, no problem, Gavin. And that's the way it was back in 2006, 2007. That's probably one of the reasons why the banks ended up in the difficulty they were. They were very, very easy at giving out money. They, they knew that, you know, you had various other assets in their, you know, under their kind of control and therefore they were quite comfortable to give it away. So 1.25, literally as easy as that. Yeah, no problem. We'll get the letter of offer over to you. So not a, I would say hardly a penny of my own money went into this deal. So I'm looking at about a 12 to 18 month project timeline to buy the property, get the planning permission, um, go and build, well, demolish the building and build out the new building and then fill it with a tenant. So 12 to 18 months would be kind of a pretty decent turnaround, maybe 24 months. But I was thinking to myself, 12 to 18, I'll have this project completed. And I'm probably going to need to borrow about another million in order to fund the construction and things like that. So, you know, it was not a, it was not a slam dunk of a deal, like getting it for 1.25 million, plus another million, you're looking at about one, you know, about a 2.25 million spend before you make any profit. So I was, you know, I wasn't, I won't say I was nervous, but I was kind of like, keen to just get on with it and, and kind of make sure that this, when this was built and the tenant was in place and all that, that I would secure the investment. So a few weeks later, I get a call, uh, I, like my architect starting to work up plans and all this kind of stuff. And I get a call from uh, an agent pal of mine, and he's an agent that works in the commercial kind of retail space. And it was kind of out of the blue, didn't expect it. And he wants to meet for lunch. So I say, oh, yeah, sure. Let's meet for lunch. So I think this was 
early January at this stage. And um, the building was now mine. And uh, the architects were working on the plans. And we're having a bit of lunch, talking about, you know, Christmas and the madness and all that. And he goes, by the way, did you buy that old building, the old bank building in Clondalkin? And I said, I did. Why? And he goes, I've got some good news for you. He says, there is a financial institution that was looking at that project and they wanted to buy it. And they, but they didn't, they have all these kind of internal committees and stuff. And in the time it took for the committees to meet and to get kind of approval to actually make a bid for the property, you and this other guy had bid against each other and you secured the bid and you secured the property. So he says, these guys have only now just got approval. And now they're saying, hold on, the property is off the market now. So I've been instructed to come to you and try to buy the property back for them. And I was just like, ooh. Now, this is the point where you start playing hard to get. And it's, you know, you have to kind of know how hard to play. Um, there's a kind of, you know, there's a fine line between being seen as a bit of a shyster and being somebody who, you know, just genuinely has pl other plans and wants to kind of get on. So um, he basically, he was kind of saying, look, what would it take for you to walk away? And I was saying, you know, I have a, I have a, an architectural team working on this. We have, you know, feelers out there for pharmacists and doctors and all of this kind of stuff. And you know, the team's been working away. There's going to be abortive costs if I can you know, tell the architects to drop everything now and stop, put, put everything away. We're going to build medical center and I'm going to make some good profit here, you know. So I don't really want to um, sell it at all. And, and that's kind of like where I left it. Anyway, back and forth for about a week. And eventually we agreed on the sale of the property at a, at a price, and I'm not kidding you, at 3.75 million. And closing in like four weeks or something like that. And this just blew my mind. A two and a half million profit in the space of six or eight weeks of ownership of the property. It was just absolutely crazy. It was mind blowing. And like what was particularly incredible about this particular deal, the extraordinary part of it is that because I put almost zero cash down, it was an absolutely incredible return on investment. So there's different types of return on investment. There's the ROI, return on investment, and that would typically you would measure that based on the price you paid. So we paid 1.25 and we sold it for 3.75. That's a 330% you know, return, we'll say. But I didn't put that much money in. Maybe I, let's say I put 100,000 into this deal or 70,000 into this deal. I turned that 70,000 into a 2.5 million profit. What does that equate to? That basically breaks calculators. It's kind of like, it's a massive, massive return. It's like a 30x return, we'll say. So it's, um, it's just incredible. You don't do this kind of 30x return in the space of two months. You just don't. And, um, you know, so before I go on any further, I really have to reiterate that, that that kind of a deal is not typical of what you would be out there, you know, managing to do. You might get lucky. Of course, you might get lucky. But for the vast majority of people, you're just not going to get that lucky. And in fact, as I'm going to be talking about in the next episode of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about 
my worst deals where I got very unlucky. But the best way to describe this deal was just, it was a fluke. And flukes come around now and then, and obviously it's, it's fantastic when they do, but I'm really curious to know, like, what do you think of, of this story? Like, leave, leave a comment down below and let me know, you know, is this, does this sound like, is this something that you've managed to achieve yourself before? Have you had that kind of a fluke where somebody just comes out of the woodwork and pays you like twice what you've paid? I don't know very many people who've achieved that. I do know some people who've done similar kind of deals, but it's, you know, it's kind of once in a career. It's not a regular thing. So very curious anyway, let me know. And also if you've any, had any kind of just incredible luck around the property industry, comment below, let me know what you think. Reason I'm asking, is just, you know, uh, in the same way that a deal can go incredibly right for you, it can go incredibly wrong. And that is what we're going to get into in part three of this series. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.